bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So one of the big stories since the last time I did a Round Canada Podcast episode was the federal government has rescinded um, amendment G4 and G64 from Bill C21. So that was the those were the controversial amendments that included a whole bunch of hunting rifles and shotguns. They added those to the list under the auspices that they were uh, semi-automatics with magazines that could hold more than five rounds. The government was considering those as these uh, weapons of war, weapons that could kill the most amount of people in, in the shortest possible time. There was a huge uh, outcry over that from the hunting community as well as from First Nations. There was a lot of campaigns, email campaigns, contact of federal MPs, all of this sort of um, advocacy work going on. And so just around the beginning of February, the federal liberal government uh, announced that they would be rescinding those uh, two amendments. And one question, I saw a news story where a reporter questioned uh, a liberal uh, MP or or a member of the standing committee, I can't remember which, and and the basic gist was uh, that they're listening to Canadians um, by by removing uh, these two amendments. So uh, kind of interesting. I've heard other political pundits say that uh, the Liberal government knowingly introduced those amendments that included a bunch of hunting firearms because <clears throat> they wanted to try to sort of set the Conservative Party up to. Uh, get a bunch of backlash from Canadians because they knew they would be opposing it and that it backfired and Canadians, their own Liberal MPs, as well as uh, First Nations, like including the Assembly of First Nations, came out and and, um, sort of denounced the government for for those two amendments. So anyways, uh, it's kind of all political jockeying stuff. But those two amendments have been removed our hunting firearms, rifles and shotguns are safe for now. However, yesterday, February 14th, there was quite a few presentations and debate at the, at the Standing um, Committee on Public Safety and National Security. That is where all of these uh, amendments and bills are vetted through uh, at a technical level before they go to the House of Commons. Lots of debate on the um, on the anti-gun lobby and the, and the uh, pro-gun comp- uh, proponents. Uh, British Columbia's uh, Jim Shockey made a presentation there speaking sort of on behalf of uh, hunters and the hunting lifestyle and his read on, on how Bill C-21 um, vilifies hunters, marginalizes hunters, and is attack on the hunting way of life and in and taking this lifestyle away from people. So interesting um, discussion yesterday at the at the um, at the standing committee. 
Anyways, uh, there are rumblings of stuff in social media that the Liberal government is regrouping. They're going to reintroduce uh, some kind of an amendment to Bill C-21 that's probably going to list a whole bunch of hunting rifles and shotguns again as to become prohibited firearms in the country. There seems to be rumblings of that and some various like tweets and posts and stuff from people that are sitting in on these standing committee meetings or are hearing and seeing these things. So I think it was to be expected. Uh, they pulled back those two amendments because of the backlash uh, from Canadians and from First Nations and just kind of let the dust settle <clears throat> and then try to repackage or rebundle that somehow and get that uh, moving forward again into Bill C-21. It's important to keep in touch with your federal MP, especially if your MP is um, liberal, um, Parti Québécois, or NDP. So those are the parties that, that are basically still going to support Bill C-21. So it's important if those are your MPs to write out to them, write to them, um, or go meet with them and and say that you don't want them to support Bill C-21 in its entirety. One of the primary issues that still exists with the bill is this issue of a variant of a listed firearm. So three years ago when Bill C-71 came into effect, that was the one that was supposed to ban all these uh, assault weapons. And they used a provision to do with the muzzle energy of a firearm, 10,000 joules or more, and they included some standard hunting firearms. They were um, kind of on the upper, upper end of big, big game animals. Uh, the types of firearms that maybe hunters would use in Africa or in the Arctic for like polar bears and walrus and those like really big, big you know, heavy caliber guns generate a lot of muzzle energy. So anyways, those were prohibited and they were just standard bolt action rifles. Now this issue of a variant came up when Bill C-71 said here's like a dozen um, military style assault weapons that are, are going to be prohibited and then they listed a whole bunch of other makes and models of firearms that they said were variants of those original 11 or 12 or 15 or whatever, whatever the, the original ones were. But nobody knows what, what a variant of a firearm is. You know, it's, it's like saying a car is a variant of a truck uh, or a skateboard is a variant of a car. Uh, the commonality is, is they have wheels, but like how how do you come up with this? Is a is a baby carriage variant of a uh, skateboard? So so that's that's what exists in these firearm bills is this confusion over a variant. What opponents to gun control are saying is if Bill C twenty one moves forward, it still gives authority to this idea of listing a variant in the future as a prohibited weapon and there's no legal definition for that. The concern for hunters is they've already established 
that a couple of traditional style bolt action long rifles are prohibited weapons under Bill C-71 now. So at any time in the future, they could say all bolt action rifles or these makes and models of bolt action rifles are a variant of the Weatherby Mark V and now they're prohibited as well. So that's why it's important to continue to engage your MPs, um, just get rid of this Bill C-21. It's doing absolutely nothing uh, to address uh, violent crime in this country. Violent crime with firearms is, I think I saw the, the latest number that was given out by a, a federal MP at the standing committee yesterday was of all violent crimes committed last year in the country, 0.47% of them had a some type of firearm present during the violent crime. They weren't used, but it was present at the scene. So they're coming after legally held firearms by people with legal um, RPALs or PALs to address uh, what this one MP said was a fraction of a fraction of less than 1% of the guns in this country that have ever committed a violent crime, uh, being guns that were legally held guns by licensed firearm owners. So uh, that's a concern, and this whole issue over the variant is the concern uh, that still is on the table, even though the two amendments were pulled back during the COVID pandemic, they were doing some studies on white-tailed deer in Quebec. I believe they were uh, CWD testing and they found that uh, some deer in Quebec tested positive for carrying the coronavirus. Just recently, Cornell University scientists there out of New York State published a paper where they had also been testing deer, white-tailed deer in the state and found that the white-tailed deer were harboring variants of the COVID-19 virus that was almost going extinct in people because of the, the vaccines, alpha, delta, gamma variants of the COVID um, virus. And so the researchers said this, is ra this raises questions about whether deer could reintroduce these nearly extinct variants back into the human population. One of the pathways that they said that a white-tailed deer could transmit the virus to humans uh, would be during hunting activities where hunters are baiting white-tailed deer. Apparently animal feed and feed ingredients are known to promote and enhance the survival of several animal viruses, including the coronavirus. There is the potential that if a hunter is in his or her bait pile, stirring it up, spreading it around, raking it up, uh, adding to it, whatever, could come in contact with live uh, COVID virus in the feed and end up um, inhaling it and then getting uh, that back into the human population and spreading again. I can see potentially um, 
some regulation changes coming in Canada, uh, possibly in the States, to do with the baiting of white-tailed deer and this risk of transmitting uh, these uh, sort of variants of COVID that are that are disappearing back in <clears throat> and basically the deer become what's called a reservoir uh, for the COVID variants and and then through hunting and contact with deer and these bait piles so uh, much like uh, CWD where they banned the use of uh, baiting in places with high prevalence of CWD because that is a place where deer can transmit the prions between deer is um, is feeding in contaminated bait piles. I can see a day coming where the best practices for uh, for hunters is going to be wearing uh, surgical gloves and masks, just you know, like we all had to do during the pandemic. You know, it's I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It is a best management practice for trappers to wear respiratory masks when they skin animals because there are a number of viruses, diseases that you can get from fur bearers uh, that can be fatal to, to people. And so one of the best practices in trapping is wear rubber gloves and um, to wear masks, especially the cats, if I, if I recall correctly from when I took the trappers course, that the cats can be the, uh, the bad ones for having um, diseases that we can inhale. So anyways, we'll see what happens to the future of hunting in Canada with respect to uh, bait, baiting deer in places where that is still legal and what they're what the best practices are going to be when it comes to, um, you know, uh, per personal protective equipment. On the topic of deer, in Saskatchewan, there is a farmer in the Dundurn area of Saskatchewan who has had a whack of white-tailed deer take up residence on his farm property this year. And he's been getting mad at that and that uh, has been picked up and made into a news story. Apparently this fella has hundreds of deer on his property and they're feeding on, you know, spilt uh, grains and barleys and peas and eating uh, bales of hay. The farmer said he estimates that the deer have eaten $3,000 worth of hay already this winter. However, the Saskatchewan Crop Insurance Agency has denied covering the losses of the hay for this particular farmer because the farmer has just left all the bales out in the field. They haven't been brought in and stacked uh, and covered up in, in any way. So yeah, I guess if you leave bales of hay out in the field and you kind of have a, a bad snow winter, then deer are going to want to eat more of it so yeah some of this stuff probably requires a little bit of self-mitigation as well uh, best practices of like cleaning up all your spilt grain particles and fencing and uh, covering off you know stuff like um, like hay 
On top of the deer issue, this farmer was complaining about all the coyotes that are now hanging around because of all these deer. Uh, they've killed some of the deer, which you'd think would be a good thing, but the farmer was also upset about that because he has dogs, which he's now worried about his dogs getting got, caught by a coyote. So it's kind of, um, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other coyotes are helping out his deer problem, but it could eat end up getting one of his dogs now there are some fairly from what I understand some fairly liberal hunting seasons in this part of Saskatchewan for knocking back the deer population hunters have the ability to take uh, does and help with population management in and around these agriculture areas however in the news story I read about this the executive director of the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation said that there's actually fewer deer hunters in this area and it's making it difficult to regulate the population with fewer and fewer deer hunters each year. Um, the executive director said there was a very noticeable decrease in the number of tags purchased between 15 and 17 and a half percent reduction over the course of the last year. Uh, the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation said hunters are more interested in bringing home bucks rather than does and so that gives the deer population a higher chance of repopulation as very few bucks are needed to service a high population of does. They, they also said the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation also said it's the first time that the number of legal over-the-counter tags for white-tailed deer has decreased in Saskatchewan in the last 12 years. So very, very interesting that hunters don't want doe tags. They don't want to help with population management when you could put a whack of, you know, deer venison in your freezer with uh, getting white-tailed deer tags. They're not interested in that. They're more interested in hunting bucks. If you follow the hunting world, you know that the world record typical whitetail uh, comes from Saskatchewan. It's been uh, the number one for, geez, probably close to 30 years now. And uh, there's still big bucks in Saskatchewan. And a, um, a culture around chasing these, these big Saskatchewan whitetail bucks. Uh, the biggest one I ever got came out of Saskatchewan one of the big uh, Dakota subspecies. They're huge bodies as well. A few years ago, Curtis and I had uh, Chad Stewart on the Hunter Conservationist podcast, and Chad is a deer biologist for Michigan Department of Natural Resources. And in Michigan, they have the issue of, you know, too many white-tailed deer in their agricultural zone. And you can shoot 10 does in this ag zone per hunting season but he said virtually nobody does that because handling and processing 10 deer is just way too much work for most people and so hardly anybody takes advantage of the fact that they can get 10 10 doe tags and wow that just kind of blows <laughs> blows me away actually so maybe in Saskatchewan they could open these tags up to non-resident resident Canadians and just say like hey you don't need a guide you don't need whatever but we got all these over-the-counter deer tags for these agriculture zones come and get yourself a half a dozen 
white-tailed deer or whatever the number would be, like, would you travel? Would you travel to Saskatchewan, even with the price of fuel, if you know you could get six over-the-counter deer tags and then you just had to go around and get permission to go on some private land? Uh, some people might, maybe if you lived close to Saskatchewan. Others might be, you know, somebody lives in Vancouver or something like that. They might not because of the price of gas. Anyways, it's just an idea. Uh, there's Man, there's all these leftover permits for residents of Saskatchewan that aren't using it. So, I mean, it's one of the things we don't have in Canada like they have in the U.S. The U.S. has its federal public land system. And so they have resident and non-resident tags. And if you're a non-resident of the state, you can get these non-resident tags and you can just go hunt in any other state uh, and you don't need a guide. Canada is not like that. We don't have a federal public land system other than our national parks. Of course, they're not open for hunting. But our public lands or crown land, as, as we know it here, our hunting is regulated f by the province for residents of the province. And if you're a non-resident of the province but still a Canadian citizen, you either have to hunt with a guide or a hunter host. And you're only allowed one permit to accompany hunter host um, a year. At least in British Columbia, you could only come on one um, hunt as a non-resident with a friend in British Columbia. So... Maybe there needs to be some changes there in um, in these areas of the Canadian prairie provinces where they just got too many white-tailed deer. Uh, allow allow others to come there if, if they want to. Last episode, I talked about this issue of uh, too many resident Canada geese in the capital regional district um, on Vancouver Island causing damage to farmlands and the capital regional district elected officials were <clears throat> getting ready to have a vote in council to whether they were going to proceed with a cull of Canada geese and that would require getting permits from uh, the Federal Wildlife Service, federally regulated migratory birds. And um, and, and, and I talked about I talked about that uh, whole whole thing of uh, culling geese. So since that story, this uh, animal welfare group in Canada called the Animal Alliance of Canada has come out sort of basically saying, you know, culls don't work. It's not a good way to go. They if you just cull birds, they're just more birds are just going to come in and infill right behind where you've taken those ones out. Doesn't fix your problem. It's not ethical to be killing the birds, but they are um, advocating for people to go in and um, kill the eggs, addling, which is what it's called. So kind of find that interesting. What they're advocating for the Animal Alliance of Canada, uh, and this does make a little bit of sense to me for these, especially the urban park spaces that have all of these geese problem happens from Stanley Park all the way over to, um, you know, parks in Ontario and Montreal and, and stuff where they got Canada geese in, in, in the park areas, is they're saying that people should start modifying the habitats, 
Canada geese kind of prefer these environments that have low, very low vegetation open to next to water. So a lot of these parks have lawns, they're mowed, the tall vegetation's cut back to make space for people to recreate and sit on the ground and all this kind of stuff. Well, that's what geese like. They don't like to have tall vegetation around where they are because it hides predators. And I've learned this goose hunting on uh, the limited time that I've done it, that if you set up anywhere near tall vegetation, like you're trying to back your stand up against you know, some tall grass or uh, a farmer's drainage dike or something where there's some tall um, cattails or, or whatever growing in it. The mature adult geese that have been around the block a few times, they don't like landing near that edge, the edge where there's tall vegetation because that that's where like coyotes and bobcats and stuff could be hiding and then they just dart out and grab them when they're on the ground so so they usually land way out in the middle of the fields and stuff so you know what the animal alliance is saying is you know kind of makes sense uh, reduce the sight lines uh, let some of these areas grow up uh, plant shrubs and bushes and and rocks and quarry stones and stuff and start to create a bunch of structure that makes the geese think that this is a risky area to come and land in you know, I, I can get behind that, you know, a bit. Doing something like that in agriculture fields is probably not overly practical. Um, you know, you're not going to go out and start putting boulders and hedgerows and, and stuff in farmers' fields. But I don't know, maybe, maybe they might. Maybe the cost of doing that versus the cost of damaged crops. Uh, I, I kind of think it wouldn't be overly practical in a, <clears throat> in a large scale agriculture situation. But anyways, I just thought it was kind of neat to fill you in on uh, some of those ideas. And I can say I don't think they're uh, totally um, off base with the ideas of starting to modify, especially the park areas in urban urban park spaces and green spaces where they got these manicured lawns next to um, to water. So you've probably heard of this parasite that humans can get from cats, domestic cats and their poop out of their litter boxes <clears throat> and how that can actually be lethal or fatal to the fetus um, of a pregnant woman. So Recently, Washington State University researchers have confirmed five cases of this parasite that comes from felines have killed five bighorn sheep in, in Washington State. So the risk of this parasite when it gets into bighorn sheep is it can cause abortions and it can cause the death of lambs, <clears throat> neonates. That's what they were finding was the case. The case wasn't abortions in the bighorn sheep. It was actually that this parasite was killing um, young, young lambs. <clears throat> now, in this case, they could, researchers said, they could be contracting the parasite from domestic cats 
or wildcats, including bobcats and cougars. So when I first read this story and I was just thinking, you know, domestic cats, and it's like, how the heck are domestic cats coming in contact with wild sheep? And, and so I started thinking about it and I'm like, well, it's not completely unheard of places near where I live in British Columbia and over west of me in the Okanagan, sheep come down in winter uh, in habitats that bump up next to farms. And as you know, farms will have their mouse cats. And a lot of times these cats leave the farm properties to go out and hunt, you know, mice and birds and stuff in the neighboring wildlands. And it's possible that domestic cats are carrying this parasite on a farm and they're wandering around and, and pooping in sheep habitat. And if a sheep comes along and touches it or sniffs it and, you know, and inhales a parasite, then it gets into the sheep population. Then I was thinking about things like bobcats and cougars. Well, if they can carry this toxoplasma parasite as well as domestic cats, then then isn't this something that's been natural? Cougars and, and wild sheep are na naturally coexisting with each other in, uh, in sheep range for, for millennia. So hasn't the wild sheep kind of figured out how to deal with potential pathogen that a, that a cougar could leave behind on sheep range. I don't know. I'm, these are just things that I'm starting to think about when I'm learning about this story from the perspective of wild sheep conservation. Now, the other thing that it brought up to mind, my mind was, so what about all these people that go out and recreate in the wintertime by cross-country skiing, walking, snowshoeing, taking their dogs out and all this stuff on sheep range. It happens just a few kilometers away from where I live. People like to go out and walk these trails through the middle of where the sheep herds are wintering. Is it possible that if those people own cats back at home, um, that they've got something on their clothing or on their shoes or something from the cat, if their cat happens to carry the parasite for whatever reason, and then they carry it out to um, the woods and drop it on the sheep range when they're going out for, the, for their walk. So I don't know whether this could actually happen or not, but kind of begs the question whether or not maybe we should uh, be keeping folks off of sheep winter range uh, during the winter months, keep people from sort of like non-recreational areas. It's just for sheep. And if you are going to go out and walk around. We don't want you spreading your cat poop and parasites around on the sheep range. I don't know, just uh, brainstorming ideas for conservation here. So in uh, mid-January, a three-day caribou summit was held in Fort, Fort McPherson in the Northwest Territories. Uh, it was organized by the Gwich'in Tribal Council, and it was the first time they had ever uh, sponsored this caribou summit. So the main theme of discussion was around the sustainability and the conservation of the porcupine caribou herd, uh, barren ground caribou. So the porcupine caribou is still one of the biggest caribou herds in the world. They're considered strong and healthy at 218,000 animals. They range all through the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Alaska. 
back in the Trump administration, there was a whole bunch of controversy con uh, from a conservation perspective developed around this porcupine caribou herd because uh, Trump had, I believe, issued an executive order which would open up Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas exploration. Well, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska is the calving grounds for the porcupine caribou herd. They all migrate out of Canada to Alaska to calve in the springtime and then work their way back into Canada and across the circumpolar part of North America uh, the rest of the year. So, so that's, uh, they, they were in the news, you know, this porcupine herd was in the news a few years ago. So, but that's what the caribou summit in the Northwest Territories was about, was this really famous caribou herd that's doing relatively well. And First Nations want to keep this, this way, uh, and to be able to keep hunting and keep their way of life ar around it. First Nation governments in Canada's uh, Arctic regions have been working with territorial and provincial governments in managing uh, anything that goes on in the range of the porcupine caribou herd through an agreement that was signed in 1985 called the Porcupine Caribou Management Agreement. And out of that agreement came the Porcupine Caribou Management Board which is a board of First Nations representatives, um, territorial and federal government uh, folks that basically vet anything that sort of happens as far as uh, development and hunting regulations and stuff in the uh, porcupine caribou herd range so that the, the, the broader group can keep an eye on sort of uh, high-level sustainability issues around the porcupine caribou herd. So there was a... Reading, reading about this, uh, this caribou summit, there were two kind of two th main concerns from participants when it comes to hunting that came, they sort of floated to the top as being big concerns of community members uh, in Canada's north over the porcupine caribou herd. Uh, one was the use of ATVs and snowmobiles for hunting. Uh, the article I read said that was on the top of mind for many people at the summit. And people were expressing concerns about off-road vehicle impacts on the landscapes and to the animals. Uh, one participant said that they had actually know of cases of hunters chasing caribou on, on snowmobiles. The other major issue that sort of floated to the top, apparently from people that attended the summit, was an issue of caribou being shot and wasted. Um, meat wastage, animal parts of animals just being left on the land, um, not animals not butchered at all, or meat being left out there, uh, as well as caribou carcasses and heads and stuff being left along the Dempster Highway, which is kind of an issue for for public perception, uh, you know, of hunting as well as well as respect for the for the animals. So, those were kind of two main main concerns of people that that live up there i don't know if there was any resolutions brought forward or actions for those they were uh, just definitely things that folks wanted to put on the table and and talk about so it'd be interesting to find out a bit more and see if there was um some definitive recommendations that came out like you know one that comes to the top of my mind would be motor vehicle closures uh, in anywhere off of like a, a, a dirt dirt road, a resource road or whatever, and 
restrict the use of ATVs and snowmobiles or restrict the use of an ATV or snowmobile to retrieving a down animal only. Uh, when I hunted in Saskatchewan, that was kind of the law there. You weren't allowed to use an ATV or a snowmobile uh, before noon, and then you could only use it to retrieve down game, if, if I remember correctly. It was a long time ago, but I don't know. Those are some ideas that could be brought, brought in, I guess. One of the other cool parts about this summit was the kids that were being brought into it they had uh, demonstrations and workshops uh, with youth teaching them how to skin and prepare the meat uh, that was held every day uh, during the three days of this of the summit and first nations from what i gather across canada kind of face the same issues as non-indigenous hunters that fewer young people are interested in hunting. Uh, there are a number of First Nations communities in Canada where the majority of their people actually live in the big urban centers uh, and not out on the land. And so there's, there's, there's a struggle there in the Indigenous communities of keeping the traditions and their culture alive through hunting. And so this was a, a really concerted effort to get youth back out on the land and get them connected with caribou, caribou hunting and the meat and, and everything to go with that because their, their culture for, you know, millennia revolved around the porcupine caribou herd itself. So that was kind of a, that's a pretty neat thing. I like stories like that when youth are getting involved uh, with elders and, and, um, and, passing on these these traditions now this is kind of an interesting bookend to this story in Quebec this winter there was a group of seven women from the Niscapi community in northern Quebec went on an all-woman's caribou hunt in Quebec they traveled 1,500 kilometers on snowmobiles between the 13th and the 21st of January, and they harvested 28 caribou that they brought back to, to their communities. So this is kind of an interesting um, juxtaposition between these two stories of Indigenous hunting cultures where at the Caribou Summit in the Northwest Territories, Elders and hunters and trappers were expressing these concerns over the use of snowmobiles in chasing and hunting caribou. And then shortly, almost during the same time frame, um, there was this hunt in northern Quebec where they were using snowmobiles and harvested 28 caribou off the land. Obviously, traveling 1,500 kilometers on a snowmobile means they were going a long ways away from from settlement and, and, and having to search the land base to find the caribou. Um, however, I don't know if the same concerns exist in northern Quebec as they do in the Northwest Territories with the use of snowmobiles and their impact on the land and the impact on the caribou herds. But um, anyways, I mean, it's pretty cool that uh, the seven, seven women went out on, a, on, I mean, a pretty serious expedition to be gone for that long, that far, traveling, you know, just think about the amount of fuel and logistics of like, like traveling 1500 kilometers and then harvesting 28 caribou. I mean, that's just 
unbelievable. But anyways, it kind of still kind of presents this uh, this interesting uh, story between between these two stories about the use of snowmobiles uh, and caribou hunting in Canada's north. Now, skipping over to British Columbia, um, a First Nations group that uh, whose traditional ter territory is in northwestern British Columbia, uh, headquartered in the remote community of Atlan, BC. Uh, beautiful place. I've spent spent time there uh, on uh, Atlan Lake. So the the Taku River Tlingit people have recently made a major announcement where they're declaring a large area of their traditional territory as an indigenous protected and conserved area. IPCA, it's uh, referred to as an acronym, according to Tlingit law. So they've declared this vast area as a conservation protected area of which 60% of it is not going to be available for mining or other resource, natural resource extraction um, industries or development. And the only activities that will take place in there is watershed restoration, uh, uh, reclamation type work. 40% of the area is they would still allow quote unquote respectable mineral and other development. In a uh, statement that I read from a spokesperson for the Tlingit people said, it's the nation's vision for those lands that need, that they need for their cultural resilience, for healthy wildlife, for healthy water, for healthy fish. Now there's nothing in this announcement that says anything about um, hunting opportunity in the new uh, indigenous protected and conserved area. The focus seemed to be on um, industrial activities, primarily centered around mining, uh, which is where the big impacts occur. But the story I read on this is that uh, moose uh, was and salmon were like the two areas of, of cultural importance and sustenance importance. So whether or not uh, Tlingit law is um, going to include some sort of uh, restrictions or prohibitions on residents uh, or outfitters that might operate in, in and around this new um, declared conservation area. We'll, we'll wait and uh, see if something develops over that. Now, the controversial part about this is this was the Tlingit Nation making a declaration under their own law saying this is now an IPCA, no mining in this area, and some mining in this area. The government of Canada and the government of British Columbia have not consented to this. So this is something that the nation made an announcement on their own, a declaration, and now they're expecting the courts uh, and the governments of Canada to recognize their IPCA and to adjust Crown Provincial laws and federal laws and to recognize the Taku Tlingit Nation as a decision maker in their own territory. The statements I've read from government officials, including the Premier of BC, 
was uh, pretty vague. They they obviously um, you know weren't partners in making this announcement so that it would have both First Nations and provincial designation. So they were pretty um, uh, elected officials were pretty kind of like acknowledging it but sort of basically saying like we're going to need to talk further to see what this sort of means so uh interesting um step of the indigenous people to assert their rights on their their land so we'll see whether or not in the future that uh this sort of thing involves uh any changes to hunting opportunity for non-indigenous people i'll keep you up to date of course on these stories the topic of fishing and hunting and trapping fines and stuff are generally pretty heated. Uh, people get caught for poaching. Uh, they're levied with fines and, and restrictions and prohibitions and stuff. And, and generally what I see in social media is uh, people are, are not happy with the size of the fines that people get or the, you know, the license suspensions and stuff. And, and people are very, very emotional about that. It, it shows how much people care for, for fish and wildlife. So that's why I kind of cover these stories just to give you an idea that, you know, convictions are happening in this country. And just to give you um, the sort of scale and magnitude of some of the fines that are being levied and you can judge, judge for yourself. So recently, Two boat captains and a commercial fishing company in eastern Canada that operates on Lake Huron, commercially fishing lake trout, were found to be in violation of not accurately reporting the amount of fish that was caught under their commercial licenses. And so the company, uh, Inland Sea Products, was fined $100,000. And the two captains of the boats were also fined. One was fined $30,000 and is prohibited from participating in commercial fishing for 20 years. The other boat captain was fined $5,000 and prohibited from per participating in commercial fishing for five years. So what do you think about those fines? I'm sure some people would be, should be, they shouldn't be allowed to be involved in commercial fishing forever permanently that's it you're kicked out of you can never get a commercial license again some people say a hundred thousand dollars like that's nothing they 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 make 10 times that much off of the fish i i don't know and they're like the fine should be a million dollars or 10 million dollars like th these are you know some of the some of the things that uh, people say when they get fired up and they see this but hundred thousand dollars i don't know how big this company is maybe they only got two boats and two captains or something and that's enough to put them out of business i I don't know for sure. One of the interesting parts of this story are these prohibitions from participating in commercial fishing. I covered a story a couple of years ago about a character on the west coast of British Columbia that was finally caught and charged in boats and trucks and everything seized for violations of commercial fishing licenses and the court slapped on a a prohibition on commercial fishing. Now, commercial fishing um, of the salmon and whatnot is regulated by, is federally, by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And what I learned covering that story was, is these prohibitions 
only apply to the DFO zone in which the person was operating in and their license was suspended. So this fella could like pick up and go to the, the, the east coast of Canada and get into commercial fishing over there, even though they were, he was charged and, and prohibited from having a commercial fishing license in the Pacific zone. So in this case on Lake Huron and these two boat captains that were prohibited from participating in commercial fishing for 20 years and for five years, that might only apply to just that zone around the Great Lakes and they may be able to pick up and go to the west or the east coast or, or whatever and carry on commercial fishing and who knows, maybe carry on doing doing sketchy stuff. I don't know. But uh, give me your thoughts on, on these fines for commercial fines. They do seem to be a little bit on the low side for a commercial operation, but they may not have been overly big in the first place, so the fines could be commensurate to the size of the, of the company. Now, another fine that's just sort of uh, the fines, the charges have been put in place and the fines, uh, apparently this is still going to court here pretty quick, uh, is a trapper in Saskatchewan who was convicted of seven charges of illegal trapping in an area in Saskatchewan that's been set aside and the only people that are allowed to trap there are indigenous people from the James Smith Cree Nation. And so this trapper was a non-indigenous trapper and was caught and charged with seven uh, counts of illegal trapping in the James Cree Nation's um, area. The trapper was fined $11,000 uh, and his snowmobile and all of his trapping gear have been forfeited. Apparently this person has been convicted before of illegally trapping and one of the asks that Crown Council has put before the judge, I guess, that's going to hear this case coming up here pretty quick this spring, is to permanently suspend this guy's ability to hunt and trap. So sounds like somebody that's got quite the, quite the history in Saskatchewan. So they're really looking to uh, up, up the ante to a permanent suspension. So interesting. So $11,000, that's a, that's a pretty big chunk of change for one trapper. You don't make a lot trapping. And snowmobile, $10,000, $15,000. You could easily have tens of thousands of dollars of trapping gear. Um, stuff's very, very expensive. So anyways, uh, tell me what you think about those trapping fines. Looks like they're going for the full meal deal in um, completely getting this person out of the outdoor activities of hunting and trapping. Maybe I'll go into commercial fishing. Uh, in northern Alberta, there are uh, two threatened populations, herds of wood bison. So they are a subspecies. There's the plains bison and then there's the woods bison. Woods bison are in the north. Plains bison are in the south. And that's what Wood Buffalo National Park was created for in northern Alberta was for the protection of habitat for uh, the endangered wood buffalo. 
Now there is a specific herd called the Wabasca herd that is kind of apparently in this weird place uh, between provincial and federal regulations in where it lives in, in using the Species at Risk Act to identify its habitat so that it's protected. Uh, I'm not quite sure the history of this, but it's just that it lacks a little bit of its habitat of this herd, lacks a little bit of the protection of the Species at Risk Act. Over the years, um, these herds have been reduced in numbers from habitat pressures. So just off the north east corner of Wood Buffalo National Park is the Alberta oil sands. So that's where the entire uh, Alberta oil sands operations are uh, just north of Fort McMurray. So that's the part of the world we're in. So when they're talking about habitat pressures, it could also be referring to the oil sands and the, and the massive development that's occurred around there. The other uh, impact that's been happening to these herds is predation. I would have to assume they're talking about wolf predation and wolf numbers increasing. Again, same story as the caribou. Logging, road development, oil and gas, seismic lines and stuff is making life better for wolves. Uh, and so that's making them be more effective predators of, of the wood bison and also unregulated hunting. Now, this is an interesting one in Canada. Uh, unregulated hunting in the scientific world generally refers to Indigenous hunters, constitutional hunters, hunters that have the right under the Canadian Constitution, First Nations, to hunt. They don't need licenses. It's not regulated. They have unfettered right uh, to hunt in their, in their territory. So apparently Indigenous Harvesting of the wood bison has been one of the factors that have been driving their populations down. Scientists have said that that this uh, Wabasca herd basically is at the point where, like, one severe winter uh, could they could wipe them wipe them all out, and then that's it. Now, uh, an interesting twist to this story is last year a group of indigenous trappers operating in near the Wood Buffalo National Park area said that they had discovered that about 10 to 15 bison had broken away from the Wabasca herd and were going off on their own and they called them the ghost herd. Now the issue is that the indigenous trappers have brought this knowledge forward to the government and the forest companies because they're planning to do a whole bunch of logging which has been identified as a threat to uh, the conservation of wood bison. They're planning to do a whole bunch of logging in this area that this breakaway group is now living in. And so the indigenous trappers are like, hey, you got to stop your logging and road building up there because there's this breakaway herd. You know, um, that would be great probably if they could work towards growing that herd or conserving it and, and, and protecting their habitat. However, um, their, their information looks like it's kind of fallen on deaf ears. So the forest companies have said, you know, Thanks for that information, but we can't confirm that it's true. We can't, we've never seen these bison. 
Uh, we can't confirm that there's any around the area that we're going to do uh, logging in, which is apparently going to go right right through till the year 2026. And uh, so this whole issue of this uh, endangered wood bison and this breakaway group kind of moving outside of where folks normally knew its critical habitat was uh, is 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 stuck in kind of this uh, this disagreement I guess between the logging companies uh, saying like hey we can't confirm that they're there and the indigenous trappers are like yeah they're there we, we you know we know where they are and um, don't know why the forest companies can't go with the indigenous people and find out where they are or whether they got their own people trying to find them or what their protocols are to find them but it, it, this, this is a weird story like that is definitely you know a weird one Maybe it kind of echoes uh, other stories that I've talked about where, you know, kind of like resource development kind of comes up against conservation. And we've definitely seen that with the caribou, uh, the endangered caribou herds of sort of like, you know, you know, that the, uh, um, you know, you set aside all this habitat for caribou, then you're going to lose all these jobs uh, in the forest industry. We've seen some of those types of uh, arguments put out there. So it's uh, happening right now in northern Alberta around the woods bison. It's kind of interesting because I've, I've seen the wood bison uh, in the wild in northeastern British Columbia, uh, working up there and flying up there and stuff. They've come across out of northern Alberta, uh, some small groups of them into the Liard uh, River area north of Fort Nelson. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's wild to be walking around and in the backcountry of, of uh, northern British Columbia. And all of a sudden this is like, holy shit, there's like some buffalo laying down over there. Uh, I don't have enough experience to know, but I just see enough videos that uh, they don't like people and they have this habit of uh, running you down and putting their head down on you and bulldozing you around in the ground and bashing you up. So uh, whenever I ran across them, I either took a picture out of the truck window or I did a big uh, loop-de-loo and avoided them the same way I would have if it was a bear. So uh, it's pretty special, though, to see... Uh, those those wood bison, um, Athabascans, as uh, the Latin name would call it. So there you go. That's kind of what's been going on around Canada since uh, middle of January in my last episode. So you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will talk to you in the next episode. <laughs>